Thank you, Wes. Thank you, Duchess. And thank you guys for singing. Uh, I said before there, <clears throat> uh, it's, it's, a, it's a sign of health that a church loves to sing. And I'm thankful that you show that health. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, as I said last week, we've been going through the, uh, we spent a number of weeks in the chapter 11, the hall of faith, and now uh, he's applying these lessons of faith to us. Therefore, this is how you ought to live. This is what it means to walk by faith. We, we, we saw at the beginning of chapter 12 last week that we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. They're not spectators watching us. They are witnesses testifying to the faithfulness of God in their lives. But it says that we're to fix our eyes, not on them, but on our author, the author and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus. And it further tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That text is an inspiring text, right? You read that and go, yes, I'm ready to run the race. But if we extract it out of its context in this epistle to the Hebrews, we're going to miss something very, very important. Remember this important biblical principle. Context is king, all right? The context is very important if you would rightly understand uh, a text of God's Word. And in this particular context, we cannot ignore or overlook the big picture, which is this. The, the epistle to the Hebrews was written to Jewish believers who were struggling, who were experiencing a degree of opposition, some even persecution. And some were beginning to wonder if it was really worth it. Some were tempted to turn back and revert to Judaism. And so the author of Hebrews has been appealing to them uh, of the superiority of Jesus Christ of the new covenant over the old system, over the old covenant. Christ is better than Moses. He's better than the the angels. He's better than the, the, the Old Testament, the old covenant priesthood. Jesus is our only hope, and he's all the hope that we need. And so he's writing to these struggling believers, urging them to live by faith and persevere to the very end. He's saying, don't turn back. Jesus is infinitely better than what you've left. And even though your family and friends may be urging you, come back, come back, we need to press on toward the finish. And the salvation that we receive in Jesus Christ is infinitely better than anything you can find anywhere else. And so when we read these words, run with endurance, the race marked up before you, it emphasizes the fact this race requires a measure of endurance. It requires faith. That's why he spent an entire chapter telling us what faith looks like, what it is. This journey that we're on contains uh, many obstacles. It, it involves afflictions. It, uh, some some of, the, of the challenges that we'll meet are treacherous. And to navigate this race... And endure to the end requires faith and requires endurance. Well, our text this evening gives us a realistic assessment of the kind of afflictions, the kind of challenges, and the kind of sufferings that we might expect to endure. A realistic assessment of the challenges these first century Jewish believers were experiencing, but the kind of challenges you and I go through as well. And so please follow. I'm going to read. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 in Hebrews 12, but our focus tonight is verses 3 through uh, 11, or excuse me, 3 through 13. Hebrews 12, verse 1, therefore, 
Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And now uh, our, our focus this evening, verse 3. Consider him who endured such, from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have all, uh, we all have, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. This is the Lord's word to us this evening. So, in our text, there are three important perspectives I want you to see on suffering. That's the title of my message, Perspectives on Suffering. And the first perspective I want you to see is your suffering is not unique. We'll show you what, it, what I mean by that as we go forward. But your suffering, whatever it may be, it's not unique. Secondly, your suffering is discipline from a loving Heavenly Father. And then thirdly, your suffering is only for a season. Those are the three things we want to draw out of the text that is set before us this evening. No, we don't want to talk about suffering and abstractions, okay? Uh, you can talk about, you know, suffering, but what is your challenge? What afflictions are you dealing with or have you dealt with or might you deal with in the, past, in the future? Because suffering is personal and the pain that we experience is personal. And so the author of Hebrews is personal as he addresses these readers, these Jewish believers, and as he addresses you and me in our experience of suffering. He provides for us wise pastoral counsel as we endure affliction in our race of faith. So, I want you to see again three vital perspectives on suffering that you and I might be called to endure. The first one is this, your suffering is not unique. Your suffering is not unique. The lie of the enemy when you're going through a really hard time is you're all alone, nobody understands, nobody cares. Have you heard that lie before? Have you found that kind of resonating in your heart? Nobody knows, nobody cares, I'm all by myself in this challenge. You've heard of the strategy to defeat people. It's called divide and conquer. Well, there's an ancillary to that that Satan often uses. It's called isolate and eliminate. He wants to get you off all by yourself and beat you to a pulp spiritually, fill you with all kinds of lies and all kinds of doubts. That's why we're to exhort and encourage one another daily as long as it's called a day so that we won't be hardened by the deceitfulness, the lies of the enemy, of sin. And so we think 
We feel, we hear these lies, you're the only one. Nobody cares. Nobody understands. Nobody wants to understand. And let's face it, suffering is hard enough without making it more difficult and more, uh, more complicated by believing these lies. But here we find help in verse 3. Our Lord's suffering was infinitely greater than ours. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He endured hostility, opposition from sinful men. This word hostility literally is opposing speech, speaking against him. They rejected him. They lied about him. They slandered him. They falsely accused him. They mocked him. They had a, a, a totally kangaroo court, a total uh, distortion of justice in order to send him to the cross and crucify him. Sinful men opposed him at every turn. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, just think for a moment what that must have been like for the Lord Jesus. Consider him. That word consider means to weigh, to think about carefully. What, what must it have been like? Weigh it against your own and realize, you know, what he went through was infinitely greater than what I went through. Think about the weight of the cross, this, the physical torture itself of crucifixion, not to mention the shame. Uh, he who from all eternity lived in uh, 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 unspeakable glory, hanging, naked, exposed on the cross, regarded by everyone who could see as a common criminal. Crucifixion was so shameful, so degrading, and so painful and agonizing, a Roman citizen could not be crucified. Didn't matter how bad his crime was. If he was a Roman citizen, that was not allowed. Jesus, the King of kings, Lord of lords, hung on a tree. But the horror on top of that shame, on top of that physical agony, the horror of experiencing in his own body, in his own soul, in his own spirit, the very wrath of God that you and I deserve. On his innocent, sinless, perfect soul, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. He shed his blood for every one of his people. And so we read here, you have not yet suffered to the point of shedding blood. We have not been asked to endure that kind of affliction. We read the, of the Hebrew believers or we see in, in, in Hebrews 11, we read of these Old Testament believers. Some of them did shed blood. Some were beheaded. They died by the sword. Some were uh, even sawn in two, it says, how gruesome is that? Stoned to death. And he's saying to the Hebrew believers, that has not yet been your experience. Many martyrs have had that experience over the centuries, but apparently this first century group reading this text, that has not been theirs, and it's not ours. And I think it's important perspective to recognize there's a difference in degree of suffering, comparing that no matter how severe your affliction might be, it pales in significance to what our Lord endured. It pales in significance to what the martyrs of old suffered. Your suffering is not unique. You're not alone in your pain. Now, some of you, your first response is going to be great. Now you make me feel guilty for complaining. No, that is not my purpose at all. Suffering hurts. It's agonizing. I tell people there's a difference. The difference between major surgery and minor surgery is this. Minor surgery is when it's you. Major surgery is when it's me. You know, when you're enduring real difficulty, real pain, real suffering, it really hurts. 
And it helps to get outside of yourself a little bit and think about, what did my Savior go through for me? What have other saints endured? But here's the point. Not that they were tougher than you are. It's that God sustained them, and their, their, the testimony of this great cloud of witnesses is God was faithful to us. He will be faithful to you as well. Jesus' testimony is the Lord has raised me up. I'm now a great high priest. I've been tempted every way that you are. I understand. I get it. I know what it's like. And I am interceding for you before this throne of grace. I welcome you. Come and receive mercy and grace to help in your time of need. That is the purpose of considering so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. You're not alone. There are many who will testify to the faithfulness of God in the midst of unspeakable hardship. And our Savior himself intercedes for you. He knows exactly whatever you're experiencing feels like. He knows it personally. He is the founder and perfecter of your faith. He marked out that race that you are running on. He knows every twist and turn and obstacle. And he put it there for your good and for your glory, his glory. And there's this assurance. If you come boldly before that throne of grace, you will receive grace to help. You will receive mercy tailored to what you need in your time of need. He knows exactly what you need. He knows when you need it. See, we think we know what we need. We think we need it right now. And sometimes the Lord knows, no, you need to develop endurance. You need to develop faith. You need to learn patience. And you learn that in the crucible of affliction. And as we read in Isaiah, we sing this, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. The floods, they won't overcome you. When you go through the flames, they won't hurt you. I'm the Lord your God. I'll be with you. And we go through those experiences, and we, sometimes we, we sense this intense sense of God's presence, and we're held up, and it's amazing. Sometimes we feel like, well, Lord, where were you? But his presence is not predicated on how you feel. His presence is dependent on his faithfulness, the faithfulness to his promise, which never, ever fails. So when you cry out to the Lord, that doesn't mean the pain's going to go away immediately. God is a lot like a vending machine. You know what a vending machine's like? You, you put in your money and you make your selection. What happens if it doesn't come out right away? What do you do? Shake the machine, you beat on it. Yeah, I see a couple of, yeah, right? We've all done that, right? And then sooner or later, you find that phone number on there you're supposed to call so you can get your 75 cents back or your dollar and a quarter or whatever. God is not like a vending machine. His answers don't usually come instantaneously like that. But he teaches us to wait patiently, to trust him, because he knows exactly what we need and exactly when we need it. So this is the first perspective on suffering. You're, it's not unique. You are part of a long line of men and women who have endured for the sake of Christ, and he was faithful to them. He will be to you as well. A savior, a great high priest is yours if you're a Christian. He knows you intimately. He knows what you're enduring intimately, and he intercedes for you faithfully. So that's the first perspective we want to get. I am not alone. I'm not the only one. I'm not in it by myself. You're, it's not unique. Secondly, your suffering is discipline from a loving father. We should view whatever hardship, affliction, suffering we go through as discipline from a father who truly loves us. Look at the principle of discipline in verses 5 to 7. 
Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? This principle of discipline is so important. And let's be honest. When you're hanging on for dear life, it's hard to think clearly. And he says, you have forgotten this. I want to remind you what you know, you know this to be true, but you, you, sometimes we don't remember that in the midst of the quagmire or when the flames are getting really hot. And so he quotes here from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and through 12, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. That's from Proverbs 3. This is addressed to human sons with human fathers. But then he applies this principle to believers, adopted sons and daughters of our heavenly father. Do not regard lightly his fatherly discipline. What's the purpose of discipline? It's to train us. It's to teach us important lessons. It's to mold and shape us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And the reality is we would probably not learn these lessons apart from God's discipline if we're just cruising along with no resistance, no challenges, and no difficulties, it it is not going to require us to exercise much faith or any patience. And we're not going to grow in character or steadfastness or all of the other things that are part of God's plan of sanctification for his children. So the purpose of discipline is to teach these essential lessons that we're not going to learn any other way. So the exhortation says, pay, pay attention, learn the lesson. Now, you have probably been in a situation where you're going through a really hard time and you're going, what is the Lord trying to teach me? Right? You've been there and you've asked that question, right? Well, there are some things we really can't be sure exactly in specifics, but I can tell you for sure he's, there's an essential lesson he's trying to teach you. It's faith and patience. In Romans chapter 5, he's talked about rejoicing in the the, the justifying grace of God. But then he says in verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This, This word, putting to shame, it means you have banked everything on the Lord and his grace, and he does not leave you hanging. He does not expose you as a fraud or a failure or a fool. He comes through faithfully. I, can, I, <laughs> I don't know why this popped into my mind. I remember when I was in high school, I was on a choir trip, and we drove into this little town. I think it might have been Brunswick, Georgia, but I'm not sure. <clears throat> we drove in this little town. We stayed in a, a hotel, and I told everybody, I saw a Krispy Kreme on the way into town. So they said, tomorrow morning, we're going to walk this mile to Krispy Kreme. We walked two miles. There's no Krispy Kreme in that town. I put my reputation on the line, and I walked home with my tail between my legs. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. Okay? The hope, the confidence we have in Christ, we can bank everything on him, and we won't be left hanging. We will not be put to shame. And so what is God trying to do? He's trying to give you a robust confidence in him that will enable you to endure, that will give proven character. How do you know it's proven? Because you've taken a few hits. 
in the world of boxing, there's this, this, there's this term, a glass jaw. Uh, some guys have what's called a glass jaw. You, you hit them right, they're done. They're out for the count. Uh, how do you know the guy didn't have a, a glass jaw? Because he's taken the hits, and he's proven that he can handle it. And in our walk with the Lord Jesus, and that running that race, have you taken the hits and proven God is faithful, and he's worked in you faith and endurance? Now, that kind of proven character for that boxer, he's taken the hits, he can endure it. He walks into the ring with a degree of confidence that one who has not been tested very much would not have. And when we run that race, we run with a confidence because we see what God has already done in us. What's God trying to teach me in my affliction? I don't know, but that, that's pretty important. It's like essential. In fact, James says something very similar in James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. <coughs> Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Many, the, the word is actually variegated trials, like a variegated leaf. Different types, very, many colored trials. For you know, use your mind here, you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. Same thing. What's God trying to teach me? He's trying to teach me to be steadfast and entrusted in him. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Let it, the effect of that spread throughout your person that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How many, want us to be, how many of us want to be mature or perfect and complete? I think most of us say, sure, I do. How many of us want what it takes to get there? Not so sure. That's why the next verse says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. He'll give you freely without finding fault. See, it takes wisdom to view your afflictions and challenges and sufferings through that prism, through that perspective, to say, whatever this is, whatever's going on in my life right now, God is up to something very, very important and very, very precious. And I can count this as an occasion for joy, even though the affliction itself brings great sorrow. I want you to see here that the heart behind this discipline is one of love. Verse 6. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. This fatherly discipline is an expression of love. It's not disappointment or rejection or frustration. In spite of what you may feel, God has not and will not ever abandon his child. Romans 8 assures us there's nothing in all of creation that can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. When we talk about discipline, there are two types of discipline. The first we think of is corrective, discipline. It's when they, we do something wrong and there are consequences. The Lord disciplines us. He corrects us for our folly, for our sin. In Psalm 32, David is rejoicing at the forgiving grace of God. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins the Lord doesn't hold against him. But he goes on before his repentance. He thinks back on those days, and he says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. That was corrective discipline. God was not going to let David go. It was the result of this grievous sin David committed, committing adultery with Bathsheba and then murdering her husband Uriah to cover it up. There's this clear indication here, God is not going to let me skate. He's not going to let me go. He's not going to abandon me to my sin and my folly. Even if we sin grievously, a child of God, he's going to 
discipline us with wisdom and love, bring us back. But there's another kind of discipline. This is more common, actually. It's formative discipline. Most of the discipline we experience is not really tied to any particular sin. It's not the result of any sin. It's simply to mold us and shape us and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. It's like a sculptor who has this big block of granite, and he's chipping away at all of the things that don't look like what he's trying to make. And so, this formative discipline is God chipping away everything in our lives that doesn't look like Jesus. And in the end, he brings forth this spectacular sculpture that was contained, that was embedded inside of that hunk of granite. And so, God is molding us, forming us, shaping us into the very image of his son, Jesus Christ. And it's not always comfortable. Sometimes it's painful. It hurts to be chipped away with a chisel and a hammer. It requires endurance. And we see that in verses 7 and 8. It says, it's for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. You know, it's interesting. Hebrews tells us that even Jesus was perfected through suffering. Did you ever think about that? I don't think I thought about it in terms of discipline until this message. But Jesus learned obedience. That's formative discipline through what was suffered. Now, again, as God, he was already perfect. But as a man, he had to fully keep the law. He had to establish a perfect human righteousness. He had to learn obedience. The one who was the lawgiver, who was obeyed from all eternity, learned obedience. And he learned it through suffering. Even he experienced discipline. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was tempted in every way that you and I are, yet he never sinned. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He was despised. He was rejected. The suffering I described earlier on the cross, that was opposition from sinners. But it wasn't just that. All of that together was part of God's training program for the Lord Jesus to establish this perfect righteousness that he would then give to you and to me which I'll refer to in a few moments. So when you experience grief, sorrow, suffering, pain, you're actually in really good company. The Lord Jesus himself did. So our perspective on suffering should be one of discipline. And even our Savior Jesus, as a man during his earthly journey, experienced the same thing. So a perspective on this discipline is we're to think about an ideal human father, uh, I read verses 7 and 8 a moment ago. And let me just say here, not every one of us had great fathers. Some of you had fathers who were negligent. Some of you had fathers that were abusive. Some of you had fathers that were absent. You don't even know who they were. And sometimes we read these analogies of God as father, and, and what goes through our mind is, 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 is actually painful. Because it doesn't bring up warm memories and encouraging thoughts. It brings up a sense of loss. I get that. I understand that. And so I realized that, that this analogy could bring up some painful memories. But please hear me. The writer here is referring to good and godly fathers. And inside your heart is the longing for such father. And every one of our hearts is the longing. Even if you didn't have that kind of father, there's a heart that longs for that. And because of that, the analogy makes sense to us. And of course, if you had the privilege of having a good and godly and faithful father, you get the principle. It makes sense. 
And as you, as you read through the, the Proverbs, we see that discipline, including corporal discipline, are expressions of love and obedience by our fathers. It's not an angry father venting his rage and anger, wailing away at his kids. But it's rather a wise and patient and godly father training, instructing, and when necessary, applying corporal discipline, correction, applying, as I say, the Board of Education to the seat of knowledge. But children, please hear me. Have you ever had that moment where your mom or dad said, I just want you to know this is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me? No, they didn't say that. I used to say that. Uh, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. You ever heard your parents say that? My, my mom used to say that to me. This is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And my temptation was to say, well, why don't we just skip it and save us both a lot of pain? <laughs> right? But the Bible tells us that discipline is an important and an even essential expression of parental love. It's actually here, it tells us it's proof of our adoption into God's family. In ancient times, many, many Roman men would have a wife and children, but he'd have other lovers, other concubines, and illegitimate children. And those illegitimate children inherited nothing, and they received no training and no discipline. They were left to themselves. So discipline was proof of genuine sonship in the particular culture into which this book is written. That's why it says it the way it says it. If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. That's what he's talking about. It's proof of our adoption. It's an expression of God's fatherly care for his children. One of the worst things God can do to you and to me is to leave us without discipline. To allow us just to wander off in sin and not correct us and bring us back. Or to just allow us to go our own way and not provide that formative discipline that molds and shapes us so that he completes the work that he began in us as we read in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. So, what should be the response to this kind of father, a faithful father who disciplines in love? It says you respected them. I remember 30 years ago now, <laughs> my son Daniel was, uh, was watching a TV program. It was one of these talk shows that just happened to be on in the afternoon. And Daniel is hearing these, this panel, and they're all talking about how terrible spanking is that parents would actually spank their children. And Daniel was distressed, and he said, Mom, these people don't love their children. This five-year-old kid who actually got my paddle and wrote on it, I hate this thing. He really did. But he understood it was given to him in love. So how should we respond to the discipline from the Lord? Verse 9 and 10, we should respond by Submission and faith. Look at verse 9. Besides this, we've all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father's spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. There's an argument here from the lesser to the greater. Our fathers disciplined us for a short time as they deemed best. All right? Parents, let's be honest. We've all had that moment, many moments, where you're just going, I'm not sure what to do. How do I reach the heart of my little son or my little daughter? How do I show them the folly of where they're going and the, the wonder of obedience, the safety of, 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 of following after the Lord? 
and the goodness and the pleasure of submitting to his ways rather than going your own way. And we agonize and we do what we think is best. And we hope and pray that God will use that to reach the hearts of our children. And there's only a period of just a few years so we have that opportunity and then they grow up. And whatever we've done, and we've done. And we pray for God to be merciful. And the reality is you look, if you have more than one child, each one is different. And so what works for one may be not so effective for another. Some are very responsive. They're eager to please. Some are a little more stubborn. You might, you know, we can, we can put it in a nice word, they're strong-willed. It's another word for rebellious. They go their own way. They dare you to try to stop them. Have you ever seen that? But we discipline our children in love as seems best, and we hope and we pray that we can train them in godly character. And if we had fathers like that, we respected them for doing that, even though their, their discipline wasn't perfect. So how much more should we sub be subject, submit to the discipline of a heavenly father who is perfect and who knows us perfectly and imperfectly knows what's best for us? He's infinite in his love for us. His patience never, ever wears thin. He is long-suffering. He's infinite in wisdom. He knows the best way to train us, to teach us, to discipline us, to correct us. He knows what's best because he's infinite and perfect in his wisdom. He's infinite in his power. He is able to accomplish all that he has purposed to do in our lives. He began this good work, and he is going to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He can do that. You and I don't have that power over other people as much as we might hope and pray that we would. And we read here that the discipline he gives to us is for our good. It's perfectly applied to make us more like Jesus. In verse 10, I want you to see this. They discipline us for a short time. It seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. And look at this, that we may share his holiness. It doesn't say that he can make, might make us holy. That would be good, right? It'd be great that he might make us holy. But there's something very personal. I want to share with you my holiness. I learned obedience through what I suffered. I accomplished a perfect righteousness that is now imputed to you, but I want you to learn and I want to share with you the experience of being practically holy. I want to share that with you. Something very personal about God's plan of sanctification. Now, uh, the writer of Hebrews is very honest here, and we need to be honest. Discipline is not usually pleasant. It's almost always painful. Look at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's the painfulness that gets our attention. It's the painfulness that drives us to cry out to the Lord Jesus. When everything's going, by, going great, when everything is just smooth sailing, uh, it's very easy to just walk by sight and not by faith. You don't have to walk by faith because everything's provided. It's all there. You're sailing along. And so God uses painful circumstances at times to get our attention, to, uh, to cause us to live by faith because our feelings betray us in those moments. He employs pain to 
revive or to, to refine our faith, to make our faith more robust and more, more substantial. <clears throat> and in those moments, it may feel like your faith is failing, but as you look away to the Lord Jesus, that's exactly what, that's the definition of faith. And you cry out, God, I need you. That's the cry of faith. Just like the father when Jesus asked him, do you believe I can heal your son? He says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That was a cry of faith because he was crying out to the right person. And God employs many, many different forms of discipline. He uses sorrow. He uses loss, grief. He uses disappointment. You had your hopes set for, on something and it just falls apart. He uses frustration. Uh, you're doing your work and it's just, it shouldn't be this hard. Just nothing's going right. That's part of his disciplinary plan to cause us to rely on him. Sometimes we have, you remember my friend Alexander who had the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. We have those kind of days. Maybe you're having that kind of week, month, or even year. And that's part of God's plan of discipline to train you and mold you and shape you and make you more like his son, Jesus. Maybe you've experienced disappointment in other people or rejection or hostility or even persecution because you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're thinking, I'm trying to do the right thing and trying to live graciously and lovingly and I'm getting hammered for it. What's the point? And the point is it's discipline from your heavenly Father and he'll make you more like Christ because that's exactly what your Savior endured. You know, it's interesting. In our country, in our culture that we live in, when Christians endure opposition, when we endure injustice, when we endure slander and criticism, what's the typical response? What do we do? We call our lawyer, and then we call a conservative news outlet, right? And we try to expose just how terrible these people are who are mean to us and who denied us our First Amendment rights and all the rest. Rather than doing what Jesus said when he said, rejoice and be glad, because that's how they... That's how they treated the prophets who were before you. For great is your reward in heaven. That's a foreign concept for many of us. The apostles were beaten by the Sanhedrin, and they left rejoicing they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of their Savior who suffered for them. He calls us here, submit, be subject to the discipline of your heavenly Father. He knows exactly what you're able to endure, so he won't let it go any further than what he will enable you to endure. He knows what's best. He won't let anything touch you that ultimately will harm you. Now, it's important we understand there are people who die for their faith, but that doesn't really harm them, does it? Because they go to glory. How much glor more glorious is that? See, we have to take a long view. It's not just this week, this month, or even this lifetime before the hope of the gospel makes sense. It's in light of eternity that makes perfect sense. There are times where a sincere Christian can lose what has been called the favorable presence of God. You go through a time where it seems like God has abandoned you. Like the psalmist, you're crying out, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Now, objectively, we know that God is not gonna do that. We know that nothing separates God uh, uh, separates us from love of God in Christ. But he allows us to go through times when it feels like he has abandoned us. We feel utterly alone. 
It's interesting if you go back and read our Confession of Faith, the Second London Confession has a wonderful chapter on assurance of salvation. It really is rich. I, I commend it to you. But in the last section, it talks about the fact that sometimes sincere Christians who are really seeking to live for the Lord go through times where they find their assurance is flagging. It's, they don't feel that sense of assurance and that sense of joy. And it gives some reasons, but one of them is even because God at times withdraws the light of his countenance and suffers even those who fear him to walk in darkness and have no light. And you say, why in the world would a loving Heavenly Father do that? It's not because he's angry. It's not because he's stingy. It's not because he's punishing you. He's not giving you the silent treatment. But rather, it's to teach you to walk by faith, to believe that he will never leave you nor forsake you, even when you don't see it and don't feel it. And for those who've been tested in those kind of situations and come through the other side, they have a robust faith. They have an experience. They have a a, a proven character that really is mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So, whenever you find yourself experiencing hardship, suffering, difficulty, it may be corrective discipline. And it's wise to ask that question. Is there something I did? But be careful because there should be a very clear, this is what I did and here are the consequences. There should be a clear connection. Don't say, well, I, 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 I did this, this, this thing over here and this thing, an utterly unrelated part of my life has gone wrong. It must be because God is punishing me for that over there. Probably not. Usually when it's corrective discipline, there's a clear link between what you did and what God is doing to bring you back. Most of the time, it's formative discipline. It's a daily program of molding and shaping and sanctifying you. It's just like pruning. In John 15, Jesus speaks of, you're the vine and my father's the vine dresser. And every vine that bears fruit, he prunes, he cuts away so that it might bear more fruit. And when God prunes us, it hurts. And we're tempted to say, God, make it stop hurting. Don't cut that off. And what we should be saying is, oh, Heavenly Father, please don't let me go through this trial, this pruning, this discipline, and not become more fruitful. Please don't let this pain be wasted. Make me more like Jesus, who learned obedience through suffering. We look at verse 11, it tells us that faithful discipline yields wonderful fruit. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. When you're in the cubicle uh, or the crucible of trial, it's, it's hard to find peace. It seems elusive. You pray for peace. You pray for strength. You pray for endurance. And all of those seem like they're in short supply. And our flesh and our heart cry out for immediate relief. And it's difficult to take that long view on suffering that says, my God is up to something that's so important and so precious, it's worth taking me through this difficult experience. And so, God is calling us, and the author of Hebrews is through him, uh, God is telling us, look ahead. Because when this training is complete, you will bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You, it's precious fruit. You will be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. You will share his holiness. And that precious fruit may have been cultivated and harvested at a very high cost, but it's precious. Richard Brooks 
wrote a, a very helpful commentary on the book of Hebrews. I use it a lot. And he talks about eight purposes that God has in discipline, whether it's formative or corrective. And I want to read them just quickly. And if you want to get a copy of that, I'll be happy to send it to you later. But eight purposes. One is to cause us to be more careful in our walk with God. Not be careless, but be more focused and intent on pleasing our Father rather than pleasing ourselves. The second reason is to wean us from the world and all its seductions. Remember what we've said before, the beast in Revelation is persecution and oppression that tries to crush you. But the harlot is the world that tries to seduce you. And sometimes the Lord uses discipline to wean us and to alert us to the seductions of this world. Thirdly, it's to establish us more firmly in the way of obedience. Uh, In the Psalms it says, before I was afflicted, my heart went astray, but now I keep your law. Fourthly, to create in us a deeper, more consistent dependence upon God and His promises. I realize I can't go it alone anymore. I can't depend on my own resources because it, it doesn't work. I have to depend on the Lord. That's faith, right? Number five, to enable us to prove again and again the absolute sufficiency of divine and heavenly grace. I had a professor in seminary that said it this way. He said, one of the reasons that God disciplines us or sends us through trials is to make us, uh, to, to, to prove or demonstrate God's faithfulness in fact, not simply in theory. And then he looks down over his glasses and says, and brothers, God has made some of us test pilots of his grace. I'll never forget that. Sixthly, to stir up our affections and desires after Jesus more fervently. We suddenly, all the stuff we set our heart on that doesn't help us, we begin to long and cry out for Jesus. And he becomes sweeter and more precious. To enable us, number seven, to know him and the power of his resurrection that we may share in his sufferings, as Paul speaks of in Philippians 3. And finally, to instill in us a greater longing for heaven when we realize the things that our hearts truly long for aren't going to happen in this life. And it gives us a longer long view to that glory that far outweighs anything that we may endure in this life. Well, very quickly, your suffering is not unique, I said. Your suffering is discipline from a loving Father. And thirdly, your suffering is only for a season. I tell you what, it is 6.03. I'm going to give you that next, next time, okay? And then we'll, we'll go there and then we'll keep going. But I'll, uh, I'll leave it there at this point because I don't want to make you suffer more uh, from too long a message. But uh, dear, dear Christian, please hear me. We're, we're going to sing in a few moments a wonderful hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast. And I, I, do we have the, do we, can we throw that first verse up real quick, Penelope? He will hold me fast. There we go. Nope. Nope. The first hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast. Can we do verse one of that? Yeah, we skipped over the, that, that section of the sermon. It says, when I fear, my faith will fail. And you stop and say, wait a minute. Are you telling me a sincere Christian, a mature Christian, can actually fear that his faith might fail? And the answer is, you betcha. Yeah. There are times it's so hard and so challenging, and we're not sure, we, we're, not sure we're going to make it. A real Christian can be there. And it says, in those moments, he will hold me fast. Well, the tempter would prevail when it seems like Satan's going to win the day. The assurance, again, is he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through this fearful path. There's two twin truths here. Confess. Number one is I'm weak. I, I can't hold on by myself. But number two, life's path is fearful sometimes. It's intimidating. It's hard. This race of faith can be treacherous. 
It's more than you and I can endure in our own resources. And then add to that, my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. And I want you to notice here that his holding you fast is not dependent on how much you love him. I can remember in college, my roommate would go, we'd pray together, he'd say, Lord, I love you, and I'd lay there going, how can I say that when I know just how much my heart goes astray, how I'm prone to want it? God, how can I tell you that? I love you. He will hold me fast. That makes you love him more, doesn't it? His love never wavers. There's nothing to separate us from his love. Even if my love is cold and I can't hold on to him, I need him to hold on to me, and he will. This is our hope. This is our confidence. He will hold me fast. My Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast.